0: We've been on Sermon Series Rediscovering Church and today is the last Sunday. We'll be talking about, anybody sad? Yeah? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Angela, I know some people are like, we need to move on now, okay? Because I'm tired of hearing you say every week how I'm not a part of this church. But just because we're not, just because we're not preaching about this doesn't mean you're not going to hear it. You're going to continue to hear it in upcoming weeks. Last week we talked about The church being the body of Christ, and some of you that were here, uh, I got a little emotional when we talked about, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. Uh, What many of you probably didn't know is that uh, last Friday, not this past, but Friday before last Sunday... A uh, good friend of mine in this church, Alan Frost, mother passed away after eight months of battle with pancreatic cancer. And uh, it, it honestly, it hit me, it hit me uh, a lot harder than I anticipated. Folks from our church that I'm close to, parents, siblings, family members, pass away. Um, but that one hit me particularly hard. And uh, Alan sent an email to some of his closest friends and family before the funeral, which was this past weekend. I just want to read it to you, because it just... On the day that she was diagnosed with cancer, Cheryl, Alan's mom, said, God may heal me, or he may take me home to be with him. Either way, I win. Eight months later, at 2.30, 2.30 a.m., March 17th, Cheryl claimed her victory. The end, when it came, was peaceful. Cheryl spent her final hours on this earth surrounded by love, care, and laughter. Yesterday, Cheryl's friend Emma spent the whole day with her. Emma is more than just a friend. She was Cheryl's partner in founding Children's Outreach. This was a ministry that Alan's mom had founded And run for 15 years. They worked side by side for 15 years, weathering many storms together and eventually seeing their dream, their passion, become a reality. They long ago claimed each other as sisters, and I don't mean just in the metaphorical sense. The bond between them was very real and stronger than blood. Emma sat for hours yesterday just holding Cheryl's hand and speaking reassuringly to her. Chrissy, a dedicated worker at Children's Outreach, was also here for much of afternoon. As Emma was leaving yesterday evening, our French Candy arrived. Candy and Cheryl go way back, at least to their early teens. Our kids grew up together. Candy's oldest son and son, oldest son oldest and my son, Alan, were in each other's weddings. Her daughter and my daughter, Karen, were each other's weddings too. Soon after Candy arrived, our friend Peggy showed up. Peggy is more than a friend also. She is a beloved sister in Christ and a wonderful nurse. She's been here for us through some very difficult times, and she's been a mainstay throughout Cheryl's illness. Candy and Peggy are both cut-ups. So in addition to caring tenderly for Cheryl, they also filled her room with laughter. At bedtime, we realized that Cheryl might not make it through the night. Peggy offered to stay overnight, and I was glad to accept her offer. Candy left, but came back a short time later with her daughter-in-law, Aaron. Aaron had felt prompting of the spirit to come see Cheryl one more time and had driven all the way from Nashville, Tennessee to Michigan to do so. Aaron read some scriptures and ended the night with the beautiful prayer from Ephesians 3. Around 2 a.m., Peggy heard, that Cheryl was congested and that she was missing some breath. She got up to attend to her and realized that the end was quite close. She woke me up, and I was able to give her a hug and kiss to tell her how much I loved her. And Cheryl responded with a soft moan, and then she was gone. A few days ago, I asked God to let me be with Cheryl at the moment of her departure, and today I am thankful That God made that possible. In the end, it was peaceful. And Cheryl is now in the arms of Jesus. She wins. The reason why this spoke so powerfully to me is at the end, when it's time for us to go, and we all go, nobody Nobody says, I wish I spent more time at work. Nobody. Nobody says, I wish I made more money. In the end, when it's time to go, nobody, nobody says, I wish I was more successful. In the end, when it's time to go, you know what people say? They say, I wish I had spent more time with who? My family and friends. I cannot remain private and individual and make it to the finish line. We said last week that you cannot claim to have a relationship with Christ ahead and be detached from Christ. You cannot claim to have a relationship with Christ ahead and worship him as Lord and say, I'm connected to him, and yet live detached lives from the body. Jesus Christ calls into a personal relationship with him, but he calls into a relationship to community, the body, the church. And I'm asking you guys for the last six weeks, how many of you guys actually believe, how many of us actually believe this, that Christian community, that the church and our relationship with the church is not some add-on side thing that we could choose to take or leave, but that it is a vital, integral part. It is a vital, integral part of our Christian lives, our lives, period. That the church, the body of Christ is so integral that God is saying, I am bringing you to be a part of something, part of a building, part of a family that's going to ultimately result in a new world. This doesn't resonate with you about what the importance of the church is. I don't know what will. God says, I have come to restore, renew everything. At the end of this whole deal is a new heavens and a new earth. At the end of this deal is when God creates and recreates all things. And God says, the way that I've begun that is the church. The place in which God has begun this building project that will culminate in a new world, God says, is the church. This is my last effort and attempt in this sermon series to ask you guys to ask you guys to consider the ramifications of what the scripture says when it says that God is part of a building project that will culminate in a new world and I am calling you to be a part of this. I mean, those of you that have been coming, you go, you know what, Peter, I believe in my heart that I could have a relationship with God apart from the church. If I were to ask you, where do you get that from? Where do you get that from? I guarantee you, you didn't get it from the Bible. And by the way, if you go, I don't believe that, well, what does your life say? Does your life say, I can do this apart from community? Does your life say, I can do this apart from church? And if it does, I am telling you, if I ask you, where did you get that from? You cannot say, I got it from the Bible, because the Bible nowhere says you could do this apart from attachment to the body of Christ. Nowhere, nowhere. I have this conversation. I have this conversation a lot when I'm at Starbucks with people, or when I'm at coffee shops with people, especially your generation. When I say your generation, twenty-somethings, they go, "I like. I, I I wanna. I wanna be into spirituality, but I hate organized religion. I'm not into organized religion." And you guys, you guys hear that? guys hear that well i've 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 trained myself to say when people go i'm not into organized religion i go well we're actually not very organized so you should come check it out you'll feel right at home you'll feel right at home (laughs) and it's the truth man listen listen I, i i plead with you i exhort you you can't you cannot how many of you just get this Say amen. How many just get this? You know, I know that part of I'm preaching to the choir in some ways, I'm preaching to the choir in some ways, and you understand and you get this. But I I I plead with you, I exhort you, church. Understand what God intended in the Christian life. Distance from church is distance from Christ. To neglect the body of Christ is to neglect Christ. To be isolated from the body of Christ is to be isolated from Christ himself. Today, I need to move on. Today, we're ending this sermon series. And we began this journey to look at the metaphor of a counterculture. We began this journey to look at the metaphor of, of, of a building and then of a family and then the body. And today, we end this sermon series by looking at this metaphor of the church as a city within a city, an alternate city. And it's what we mean by our mission statement. The big idea comes from Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 where Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. You are a city on a hill. And in in, in, in New Community, what we say when we mean by that is Chicago is a really, really big city. And in this big city of Chicago, we're saying we want New Community to be an alternate city. An alternate Chicago. Question, obvious question. Can you be a city by yourself? Jesus says you are to be a city within a city. Again, we're reminded that God's purpose in this, is not just to save you as an individual, but that he saves you in the community. And he says you are to do this so that you could reflect an alternate community, a counterculture that is a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. New community is to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago in which Jesus is king and the way that we live out our lives displays the fact that we are an outpost of the kingdom of God. I love this quote. I don't read a lot of quotes, but let me just read it real quick by a guy named Harvey Kahn. He said, that perhaps the best analogy to describe all of this is that of a model home. We are God's demonstration community of the rule of Christ in the city. On a tract of earth's land, purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what that will be, he has re- erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. He now invites the urban world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting the neighbors into its open door to Christ. Evangelism is when the signs are up saying, hey, come in and look around. The Bible says that the city within a city is to be a place where people could come in and say, oh, Jesus Christ, citizens of this kingdom, Jesus Christ is your king, and this is how y'all live. Wow, look at that. You have a radically different value system. We do. Why? He's king. Y'all aren't like the citizens of the city out there. No, why? Because Jesus is king. So the way that we the way that we relate to each other across race and in the city, the way that we use our money, The way that we handle our sexuality, the way that we do everything in this alternate city will look radically different. Here's a very common word that we use, countercultural. And one of the ways that the Bible says that we are to be a city in a city is that our job is to make the invisible visible. How do people know that Jesus Christ is ruler? How, does Jesus, how do people know that the kingdom of God is here and that we live under the rule and reign of king? How do we make that invisible thing visible? Jesus says, you embody it by the way that you live together. And one of the ways that we embody the kingdom, we make the invisible visible, is through a reconciled community. You guys, throughout the sermons, we've talked about how one of the most important ways that we are the church We live out the reality of who we are is that we bring people of different race, ethnicity, culture in together to one community. And by the way that we do life together, we reflect the values of the kingdom, that in the kingdom there is reconciliation. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, may all of them be one, just as you are in me and I am in you, that the world may believe that you sent me the Bible says a powerful demonstration of the gospel that Jesus Christ died and rose again to recreate the world is when people of different race, ethnicity and culture actually live in unity actually live in unity loving one another how do we without being shamed demonstrate and proclaim that the gospel has the power to reconcile sinful humanity to God when we can't even display in our lives together reconciliation of people of different race and ethnicity. How the heck do we tell the world out there that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection did that to reconcile sinful humanity to God when they look at the church and go, y'all can't even get along with each other. How do we make the invisible visible? By the way that we do life together. Do you understand that this isn't just an add-on to the gospel, but is at the center of it? Oh, good Lord, you guys. In our life, together, we display the reconciling power of the gospel. The mission of the church is to show the world that people who cannot live in unity and love in the city of Chicago, hello, can live in love and unity in this alternate city. Is it happening? <laughs> That's a question. Is it happening? This week, uh, many of you, like myself, I was just devastated by the whole Trayvon Martin shooting in Orlando. Just hearing on the After a while, I just needed to turn it off because it just literally started getting me angry. Do you know what the world out there looks like? Here's two graphs I want to show you. First and foremost, hate groups in our country has gradually gone up. Take, just take a look at this. Take a look at this. In 2011, in 2011, there are some 1,018 hate groups in the country that we call United States. Let me show you a second graph more closely. City of Chicago. That's the city of Chicago. Each dot, I know it's kind of hard to tell, each dot represents 25 people. The red dots represent white folk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the red dot represents white folk. Okay? The blue dot represents black folks. The green dot. I'm sorry. The orange dot represents Hispanic folks. And the, and the green dots that you can't see represent Asian folks. Apparently, we all live in Chinatown, okay? Apparently, apparently, that's where we live. It's like that tiny little circle in Chinatown. That's where we live. Now I'm just messing with you. The green dots, the green dots, it's very telling. Asian Americans, we're actually spread out all over. That's the city of Chicago. People of different race, ethnicity say, we don't care for our different kinds. We all want to live amongst each other. My question is, are we any different in this alternate city? Is this making anybody feel uncomfortable? Are we any different here in this alternate city? That is the question that we need to wrestle with. If that's what the larger city of Chicago looks like, is there any difference in this alternate city? Because if we are not any different in this alternate city, we fail to be countercultural, and people fail to see the power of the gospel. But here's the question. Okay, so we all look diverse in this church. How deep are our relationships? How deep? Remember those evaluative questions I covered the first Sunday? Can I just go through them real quick with you? Because here's the thing. We can all go, amen, holiness. Okay, so here's some questions. Number one, number one, do you come to worship service with people who look and act just like you? Do you know why I ask this question? Our church will not be this alternate multi-ethic, multicultural, multi and socioeconomic city just because people are from the streets go, oh, they have diverse worship. Oh, they have preaching. Well, we're we going to go. The only way that this will be a truly multi ethnic city uh, is if you have relationships that go beyond people who look and act just like you. Do you? Do I? Secondly, do you leave worship service with people who look and act just like you? Because chances are if you come with people who look just like you, you're going to leave people. Looking at just like you. Third, are you sitting right now with people who look and act just like you? Uh-oh. Can I just one thing? Real quick, and we'll move on. I, I want to challenge some of you guys. Whenever you come to new community, whenever you come to new community, even if you come with friends, will you guys do this? Will you guys say, hey, you know what? We could always connect after service, but today, let's sit with people that we don't know. What if we got in the habit of doing that? You know what would happen? Every single visitor or stranger would actually be met and greeted warmly by somebody. Third, fourth question. Do the words diverse, different, and difficult describe your friendships? Fifth, are you regularly praying with anyone who doesn't look and act just like you? We talked about corporate spirituality, seeing different facets of God as we worship with people who don't look like us. Fifth, uh, Sixth, do you seek out mentors of different race, ethnicity, and gender? Next, do you regularly entertain people of a different race and class at home? When's the last time you invited somebody over to your house who's totally different from you racially, ethnically, culturally, and socioeconomically? This is easy. We all can do this. You know what's hard? Opening our homes and being hospitable. to people who are different. Do you speak up when others, Syriotide people of other race in class? One of the things that just really grieves me is that many of us, when we go back to our own ethnic, racial, cultural groups, there are folks who make fun of people of other race, ethnic, cultural groups, and we laugh along with them. And we don't stand up for truth and go, that isn't funny. That's not Christian. Lastly, are you feeling prideful and arrogant about how well you did on this? (laughs) Do you know why I do that? Because if you're sitting there going, that's right, bigots, racists, I am enlightened. You're actually a bigger problem than the racists. Amen? You're actually a bigger problem. Do you know why? There's nothing worse than being bigoted towards bigots. Can I get an amen? This will be a loving alternate city when those of you who go, hey, man, all those answers, I get it, I get it, I get it. But we don't start judging other people in this church who don't. We humble ourselves and go, hey, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. You guys, is this kind of healthy, authentic, deep, counterculture community difficult? Can I get an answer? Is it difficult? Of course it is. It's almost impossible to be this kind of a church. Being a new race, a counterculture, a building joined together, a family, a new race of people is incredibly difficult. Why? Because you and I live and breathe a culture in which everything that the world out there says about its value system is so foreign to us. I'm not just talking about individualism. I'm talking about the core values that the world says these are important and believe. It is so radically different in the kingdom that it becomes hard to do this kind of genuine, authentic, countercultural community relationships. And in the passage today we're going to look at, Jesus reveals to us the values of the kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. In Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, many it's not an individual guide to ethics, how I should live my life. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life and values of people that live in this alternate city, the new community. John Stott, famous scholar, theologian, when he wrote this, a commentary on this, he called this the Christian countercultural. And what he's saying is, here is the value system. Here is the way that the people in this counterculture, in this alternate city, live. Because they're guided by these values, the values of the king. This is how the citizens in God's city live differently from citizens in the city of man. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Let's look at it together. Looking at disciples, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God has just something out there, but the kingdom of God is something that has come into you. The kingdom of God is present in your heart and in your life. What is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? We talk about this a lot in our church. Brief recap and review. Simplest way to describe what a kingdom is, is describe it as an administration. When we have a new president in the White House, we get a what? New Administration. What is that? Some of you could relate in your businesses, in your departments. In your department, you get a new head, and they bring in a new administration. Administration brings new values that are different from the old administration. So this new head of the department comes and says, those things were really important when the other guy was there. But now that I'm head, these things will be important. The things that were important before, they're not important anymore. And the things that were not important before, they're going to be very important in this new administration. A kingdom is a new administration. And Jesus says, when I come into your life, I come in with new values, new values, new ethics about how you do everything in your life. Before we move on, this redefines what a Christian is. This redefines what a Christian, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has invited the rule, the reign, the kingdom, the administration of God into our lives. That's why Colossians 1 says what? Verse 13, we have been delivered from kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Do you know why I say this? Because you know how many of us receive our Christian life? We go, I'm going to be a Christian, God's going to come into my life, and my life is going to be better. You know what better? I See, I can't do quotes withholding this now, and I do a lot of quotes. There's, better. You know what better is? You know how we think? My Christian life will get better. My Christian life will be better as this. As a Christian, my life is going to go on as planned. My agenda, my goals, nothing changes. My values, everything, same. And Jesus is just going to come into my life and help me with my agenda. Many of us perceive our Christian life as, I'm just going to go on as planned. And Jesus, so it's like, Jesus, I want to transfer you into my kingdom, and my life is going to go on as planned. That's why some of us, when we become a Christian and our lives don't work out the way we had planned, we get all thrown out of whack. We go, what, what, why some of you sitting here, and you're despondent today, why? Your life isn't working out as you planned. But what is your life that you planned? I have the same goal, same agenda. I just needed Jesus to come and give me kind of a pep route. Listen, Jesus doesn't come into your life to help you be a better king. Jesus doesn't come into your life to help you be a better king. He doesn't want to be in your kingdom at all. Jesus comes into your life and says, I become king, I become Lord, and everything in your life reorders itself around me. Can we just be honest? How many of us stink at ruling our own kingdoms? How many of us are literally in here because we thought we could be a great king or a queen and we stink at it and all we've got to show is a messed up, broken life? We know this intuitively. We already know this. And yet what? We always think, God, I know better. I want to be in control. I just want you to come and be my helper. Jesus doesn't want to play second string in your life. He doesn't want to be your helper. If he comes in to be your helper, he is not worthy of your worship. He comes into our lives and he says, I come in as new king. And I come in and you're going to have to reorder everything around me. I don't reorder my life around you. But that's what the world out there says. The universe centers around me. I know. Jesus says, that's why this is going to feel like your life is being wrecked. Because being in the kingdom, your life revolves around me. In him, all things hold together. He comes into our lives as king. Is he your king or is he your helper here to give you, help you reach your goals in life? I'm telling you, if that's the kind of God you worship, he's not worthy of your worship, man. Go find another God. He's not. How can a God like that who comes in as your helper command you to surrender everything? Let's keep going, you guys, okay? Everybody, buckle your seatbelts. You ready? Buckle your seatbelts. You ready? You know why? Because now Jesus says, here's the values of my kingdom. Here are the values of my kingdom. Check this out. Check this out. This is so powerful. Verse 21. Blessed are you hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. How many you want to keep reading? Ah, verse 23. Rejoice in that name and leave for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. How many are so rich? You're an American. Every single one of you should raise your hand. You make more than $2 a day. You're rich. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Verse twenty-five. Woe to you who are well-fed now. How many of you are well-fed? You live in America. You're well-fed, for you will be. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Verse twenty-six. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets you guys pause pause do not read this like you normally read the bible because in this section jesus says here are the values of the world's kingdom verse 24 on you know what they are values of the world's kingdom here they go first is power why where do you get that verse 20 uh, when he says when he says what uh, wealth bless uh woe to you who are rich Rich, it's about wealth and poverty. Matters of power. First value in the world's kingdom, power. Second is comfort. These people are full. Ah, I'm well fed. Mm, mm. My my needs are met. My needs are met. I live in a nice house. Where do I go? My needs are met. Comfort, value in the kingdom. Third value is, he says, laughing. Now, that's a little bit weird. Because Jesus isn't saying, woe to you if you laugh. The word laugh literally in Greek is gloat. Hello. So it's not talking about people who are having fun. Nah. It's talking about people who have won. In other words, I succeeded and you didn't. Nah, 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 nah. Gloat. What is that? Third value, success. Fourth value. Fourth value is what? When they speak well of you, which is what? Recognition values in the kingdom of the world success power comfort success recognition let's all say that together ready power comfort success recognition one set of values what is that that's what our culture what lives for truth be told that's what what we That's why there's some of you here today going, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. I doubt God. I'm despondent today. Why? If you live your life for success, comfort, power, recognition, and those things are taken away from you, your life is going to feel meaningless. Let's look at the values of the kingdom, shall we? kingdom of Jesus, verse 20. What does he say? They're exactly the opposite, actually. He says, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hated and insulted. What are they? The values are weakness, sacrifice, grief, exclusion. And what does Jesus, let's say this together, right? Let's all say it together. Ready? Here we go weakness, sacrifice, grief, exclusion. And Jesus says, this: when you leave the kingdom of this world and when you come into my kingdom, the things that the world values are not important to me and the things that the world despises are important to me. If you want to be part of my kingdom, weakness, sacrifice, grief, exclusion. Who wants to join? Right here, let's get in line. Who will be the first one to join us saying, That's the kingdom of Jesus? Let me add it. You guys. For those of you sitting there going, That sounds a little harsh, man. I love this quote by a, a Bible commentator, Michael Wilcox. He said, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. And then he says this. I put this quote on here. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. You're sitting there going, that sounds like, that sounds like church of masochists. Really? Weakness, grief, suffering. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I don't need you to go seek these out as if you want to desire them. Even the Son of God, as he is what? Praying, looking at the cross, says, Father, take this cup from me. Take this suffering from me. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't want to suffer. Jesus is saying, seek suffering. But what does he say? He says, if you're a follower of Christ in the kingdom, when they come, you prize it. Jesus isn't saying, when somebody gives you power and comfort, say, I don't want it. I don't want it. He's saying, don't do that. He's saying, when they come, suspect it. Suspect it. He said, how is this even possible? This is how it's possible. Jesus says, when you come into a relationship with me and you enter into my kingdom, listen very carefully. There is created in you such internal freedom from control of power. Success, recognition, and comfort. That even when these things come to you, you're able to suspect it. And there's such internal freedom from control of power, success, comfort, and fame. That when weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion come, you're able to prize it. Question. Have you embraced the values of the kingdom? Are you a kingdom follower of Jesus? Imagine two people. Both of them have great jobs, lucrative jobs that make a lot of money, give them tons of status, tons of perks. And both of them suddenly realize, and by the way, this is not a, this is not a hypothetical. Both of them realize that their jobs are going to be gone, and they will never find another job similar one. Imagine the person in the world's kingdom. How do they respond? How do they respond when their job is taken? Why? They're, dev- they're devastated. Why are they devastated? Because their security is in their job. Job is gone in the kingdom of this world. That is everything to me, and so therefore I'm devastated. It's all about how much money I make. And so when I'm no longer able to make that money, I'm not just discouraged, I am despondent. In the kingdom of this world, Jesus says, you are so under the control of power, success, recognition, and comfort that when those things are taken away from you, it's devastation. Take a look at someone in Jesus' kingdom, though. They're losing their jobs. What happens? Here's what doesn't happen. I'm praising the Lord every day. Jesus says, don't be fake. What do they do? It says they weep. I love that. They weep in the kingdom of Jesus. It doesn't say if you're in my kingdom, you have faith and you're impervious. Then you go, I'm just praising the Lord. Jesus says, there's weeping in my kingdom. But, look at your Bibles. but. But. He says, blessed are you who weep now. Everybody look up here. He doesn't say, blessed you will be someday when you're weeping. He doesn't say, blessed you will be someday when you're fed. He says, blessed are you now when you weep. You are blessed as you weep. You are comforted. Present tense. Why? Everybody. Please pay attention. Here's the paradox that Jesus is getting at. The world is blessed. The word blessed is a very powerful word in both Greek and Hebrew. It means deep satisfaction, deep satisfaction, and a sense of deep well-being. And Jesus says, in the kingdom of the world, laughing and blessedness go together, but not weeping and blessedness. In the kingdom of the world, power and blessedness go together, but never weakness. And blessedness. In the kingdom of the world, Jesus says, success and blessedness go together, but never sacrifice and blessedness. But in the kingdom of Jesus, here's what Jesus says He says, I give you a blessedness that is impervious to circumstances. Can I get an amen? Jesus says, in the kingdom, I give you a blessedness that is impervious to circumstances because your blessedness, deep well-being, is not tied to whatever that thing is. Because in my kingdom, there's a radical freedom from family, success, money, recognition, and whatever else the world values. Your blessedness is not tied to these things. And the blessedness that comes in the kingdom is one in which you can say, I'm not worried. I'm not anxious because I've not put all my eggs in that basket of my job, my career, my money, my health, my children, and some of us, my ministry. Some of you are sitting here today, and you can't even pay attention to this sermon because you're sitting there going, what if he leaves me? What if I lose my job? What if I can't find another job? What if something happens to the stock market? What if I can't have any children? What if, 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 what if? And the question that Jesus confronts with, with is, is there such freedom from the values of the kingdom? That your heart and your soul is impervious to these circumstances. Is this resonating with anybody? But then Jesus, as he always does, takes this further. He ratchets up the intensity. This is what he does. He says, listen, guys. He says, not only are you blessed because of that, he says, your blessedness actually is increased by weeping. It's increased by sacrificing. It's increased by becoming weak. Does anybody experientially know what I'm talking about? Do you know what Jesus is saying here? The reason why it's increased is because there's a certain blessedness, there's a certain welcome, and an honor that comes from God that you'll never tap into, that you will never uh, taste his sweetness, and that you'll never get energized by it until you are willing to lose the world's acclaim. Until you are willing to lose the world's power. Until you die to that insatiable need for recognition. And until you become totally weak. Thank you. I could really say now, I give my blood, sweat, and tears for my church. Jesus says that the blessedness that comes in the kingdom is like the stars in the night that get brighter, the darker the night gets. The blessedness that come to those who are in the kingdom, not only because they've been freed from the control of power, success, fame, and recognition, The blessedness that comes that is increased in your weeping, increased in your grieving, increased in your hunger. It comes as a result of being freed from a need to be recognized, need to have power, need to succeed, need to have wealth. Why? Because you and I don't really know that God is all that we need until God is all that we have. And that's not some cute church you say. The most loving thing for a loving God, the most loving thing for a loving God to do for you and me is to give us the one thing and the only thing that will meet the deepest need of our hearts for our significance, for identity, and for security. And the only thing and the one thing that will meet our deepest heart's need for security and significance is God himself and not anything else. So when we prize these things that the world says avoid at all costs, weakness, sacrifice, grief, exclusion, doesn't mean that we don't want them. We seek them when they come. The Bible says the child of God, the follower of Jesus in his kingdom. We don't care. We prize the fact that these things make us wiser. And not more despondent. They make us more kind instead of more bitter." They make us deeper instead of superficial and shallow. And they make us more blessed. When you're in the kingdom of Jesus, there is this radical internal freedom from the control of these things. And listen, guys, why is this so important? When we're talking about alternate city and alter community, Because it is to the degree that we are psychologically and internally freed from these things, listen, that we will be free to build deep relationships sociologically. Here's what I mean. If your identity is your job and your success, how do you look at somebody who has failed in their jobs and not successful? If your identity and your security is how much money you make, how do you look at somebody and treat somebody who's broke? If your identity and your security is the fact that you're a moral Christian, how do you react and treat somebody who has failed morally? If your identity and your security is your race and your culture, How do you treat somebody who is different from you? If you are clinging to things as your identity and your significance and embracing the values of the kingdom, it becomes impossible to embrace sociologically people of other race, other culture, people who have failed, people who are not famous, people who are not powerful, people who are not strong. Can you have community? Absolutely not. Out the window. Out the window. The reason why this is so important for us is because I've stood up here for the last six weeks and said, you guys, we need to be this community, the family, the building of God. And many of us are going, that's good, that's good, that's good. I'm telling you right now, until you have embraced the kingdom and there's been a revolution of your soul and internally you have been freed once and for all from the values of the kingdom, it will be impossible for us to be in community with people who do not have those things that we value in the world. Does that make sense? Jesus says in my kingdom, in my kingdom, in this alternate city, nobody disdains, nobody looks down on, nobody despises, nobody feels superior to people that the world considers losers, that the world considers, disdains. Why? The salvation of Jesus. The salvation of Jesus, I do this every Sunday, it was achieved not in strength and power, but in weakness and service. The salvation that we have is achieved in weakness and service. And those who embrace this upside down salvation are not the strong and the spiritually strong and the accomplished, but those who are weak and are willing to admit that they're spiritually bankrupt. And when we embrace the upside-down cross reversal value of the kingdom and we admit that we're not very strong, we admit that we're not very powerful, we admit that we are spiritually bankrupt and we enter this kingdom, it changes the entire way in which you look at other people who have failed, who haven't made it, who the world disdains. And instead of despising them, what do we do? We love, roll up our sleeves and we wash their feet, and we serve them. Church, I am telling you that the kind of community in the alternate city that we're talking about where people of different race, ethnicity, class, people of different spiritual journeys, people all over the map, the only way that we'll be able to do this community is if we have so embraced the values of the kingdom that there is a radical reversal that has occurred in our heart of hearts. Otherwise, we can't. and We will not be able to be in intimate community with men and women who are different from us. There are innumerable implications of what this means. Let me just mention one. And then we're going to end with the gospel. Let me just mention one. <laughs> I, thought about, I thought about, you know, what this mean in terms of how we use our money, what does this mean in terms of how we do our jobs, so on and so forth. But you'll have to excuse me because I'm going to go on a little rant. Is that okay? I'll go on a little rant because I want to talk about singles and dating. You know why? Because one of the ways that we are so far removed from being this alternate community it's the way that singles in our, church, in our church go about relationships, dating, and friendship. As a pastor, I'm discouraged at looking at what happens when it comes to singles and the way that men and women. I'm not talking about everybody, but I'm talking about a good number of you. Why? Let me give you an example. In a world that values, in, a, in the city out there that values power, recognition, fame, and wealth, values of the kingdom, values of the world's kingdom, in a society that values those things, you know what's the most important when it comes to mate selection? Looks, appearance, how much money you make, how successful you are. Are we any different in this church? Are we truly a radically different community where singles go, those values don't guide my decision in terms of who I look at? Or are we just like the world in terms of how we go about who we want to be with for the rest of our lives? I've told this story before. You guys have heard it before. Um, The way that most Christian men, and I'm going to pick on men for a little bit and then we'll move on. The way the most Christian men go about picking somebody is they'll walk into a room and they'll pick out two or three of the most attractive women in the room and pray really, really hard that they're Christians. Women, single women, is it true? And that grieves me as a pastor because I'm looking at it going, how is it that single men in our church are no different from the men of the world out there that instead of looking at somebody and saying, the thing that I'm really looking for is do they actually are women of character and do they love Jesus? They bigger look and go, if you're not attractive and we don't have this chemistry. Chemistry is a class in high school. Chemistry has nothing to do with a healthy relationship. Chemistry has nothing to do with what makes a relationship work. Can I get an amen? Nothing. Nothing. If we are going to be a truly counterculture community, it's one in which single men will look at single women in our church and beyond and say, I want to find somebody who is a woman of character, loves Jesus. And single women in our church will be able to look at men and go, you know what? I don't need somebody who's making a lot of, I want a man of God who I can follow, who I can be. And if you are married, by the way, I have a little something for you. So I'm going to talk to the single men in our church for a little bit and then single women. Single men in our church, can I just tell you something? And I don't want to be crass, but I'm going to say it. Grow a pair. Grow a pair. Here's what I mean by that. If you're a single guy in our church, I've been waiting all month to say this. If you're a single guy in our church, listen, if you're a single guy in our church, please do not play with women's emotions. Do not play with women's emotions. You like somebody, you like a young lady, ask your group, pray about it, and ask her out. Do not play with women's emotions. What is that? What is that? That's values of the world, man. That's how it works out there. You're not a player. You're a man of God for crying out loud. And if you're going, oh, man, Peter, women, I'm getting to you a little bit. Guys, guys, grow up here. Listen, listen, for some of you, if you're going, well, I don't want to ask her because what if she rejects me? If your entire identity is going to be crushed because a girl rejects you, then she has valid reasons for wanting to do nothing with you. It is valid for her to go, I don't want to be with a guy whose entire security is going to be crushed because a girl says no. Amen? And guys, here's another thing. Please, listen, listen. What is, what is this nonsense of, well, if it's the Lord's will, he'll bring her to me. What the heck are you talking about? That's stupid. So, no, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. Guys, do you go home and go, well, if it's the Lord's will, he'll bring me dinner. No, no. You get up from your fat, lazy butt, and you make dinner. What is this nonsense? And they're going, well, if the Lord's will, he'll bring her to me. You like somebody? Talk to your small group. Get their wisdom. Pray about it. Ask her out. And take her on a nice day. Guys, guys. See, I'm not talking about concession. Are we an alternate city? Women. Can I talk to you for a second? I have to be gentle. I have to be gentle. Uh, Yeah. I have to be gentle. I do have to be gentle because I'm going home to my wife. and she, you know, So I need to be gentle. I need to be gentle. Single ladies, can I just tell you something? I'm going to go roundabout way. There's no such thing as marriage problems. There are singles problems that we bring into the marriage. Marriage problems are things like you want to sleep on the right side or left side. Because I used to, you know, sleeping by myself. Left side or right side. Bottom of the toothpaste, top of the toothpaste, you know. Totally see up. That's marriage problems. Marriage problems are what ultimately are singles problems. The issues, dysfunction that you never dealt with that you bring into the marriage. And all of a sudden, see, here's the thing. We think, we think, this is the reason why our relationship problems exist in the church. I didn't mean to go this long, but I'm going to. Is this okay? Can I just go, listen, 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 listen. So many of us bought into the right person myth. And the right person myth says, when I meet the right guy, what? Everything will be when I marry the right person, everything will be... When you marry that person, you bring your own individual dysfunction into the marriage. See, we think, <laughs> if I meet the right guy, he's never going to get me angry. So I have to work on my anger issues. That's what you're thinking right now. I'm serious. I don't have to, be more, I don't have to work on being more kind, 1 Corinthians 13, love. Why? because he's going to do nothing to get me to be on call. What? Marriage myth. Ladies, can I tell you something? Quick story. A young lady moves into a city. Grew up a Christian. Gradually walked away from the faith. Nothing like existence of God. No, no. Small compromise here, small compromise there. Work got busy. Life got busy. Started dating a bunch of other guys because Christian men, by the way, Ladies, why are you so disappointed that Christian men don't behave like Christian men? I told you, don't ask if he's a Christian. Ask if Jesus is his Lord. Don't get thrown out because, oh, my gosh, what happened to all the Christian men? Maybe they're not a Christian. Where was I? Single young lady. I'm almost done, guys. Single young lady, single young lady, single young lady. Gradually, she finally goes to this party and meets a guy. And he is the total package, has everything on the list that she was looking for. And ladies, you know that list that you have, everybody, in you know that list? Every- <laughs> and everything on the list, and everything on the list. She went home and told her mom, and said, mom, I think I found a perfect guy. You know what her mom said? Her mom said, honey, I love you. But a guy like that isn't looking for a girl like you. Question is not, will I find the right guy? Question is, are you becoming the kind of woman that the guy that you're looking for is looking for? Are you becoming the kind of woman? Nobody's walked out yet. That's good. I'm almost done in two minutes. Are you becoming the kind of young lady that that guy who loves Jesus will look at and go, that's beautiful that you love Jesus? Stupid shows like Bachelor, Bachelorette, our culture. What is that? You know what that is? That is find him and your entire life will be just okay. In this city, God says, work on being the kind of man or woman that the person that you're looking for is looking for. Okay, Dan, I'm going to do one more thing, okay? One more thing, one more thing, one more thing. By the way, ladies, was that firm and yet gentle? I love you. I love you. And it saddens me that when a young lady comes and says, Pastor Peter, what's wrong with all these Christian men? And I don't have the guts to say it because I know them well enough. I want to go, they're not looking for a girl like you. Because if he's the kind of guy that you're looking for, you're not where you need to be yet. Are you becoming the person that the person that's on your list is looking for? This, by the way, is a little teaser for a four-part sermon series on singleness and dating, and in, in the fall. <gasps> now, with the commercial break, we get back to regular programming. Can I say one other thing? I know we're going a little bit long today, but you gotta, you gotta forgive me, okay? I'm bruised up. And I was, let me one more thing. Singles, singles. Uh, by the way, married couples, remember what I just said? There's no such thing as marriage problems. It's singles' problems that you bring into the marriage. Remember that? Singles, is it hard to remain sexually pure? <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Like three people are like, "Oh, rest of you're like." Here's why I say that. Here's a real quick and I need to finish with the gospel and Jesus. Here's the reason why I say that. Here's the reason why I say that. Listen, listen. Here's the reason why I say that. It is impossible for Christian singles to embrace the value of sexual chastity if you are not part of a community of people who affirm love and value and respect your commitment to be sexually pure. And a big part of remaining sexually pure is healthy friendships between single men and single women where you treat that other person like your sister and your brother. You cannot defeat sexual temptation and lust by willpower. I will be pure. I will be pure. I will be pure. First guy comes along and says, you want to? Yes. No, 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 no. Community. Let me just put it this way. If we are going to be an alternate city, check this out. Check this out, guys. You know how radical this is? If we are going to be this alternate city, singles in this city who are used to sleeping around, will come into this city and go, huh? that's what I've been looking for. Wow. Wow. That's what I've been looking for. Y'all actually value the fact that I want to follow Jesus like this? We do. Y'all actually willing to meet the need for intimacy that will help? Me? We will. Wow. Like you don't care about my looks, but... Like you don't care about. Mm-mm. We love you, care about you. And we're going to treat you with dignity, honor, and respect. Then we will be an alternate city. Then we will really be countercultural. I need to finish with the gospel. I can't finish with sex and dating. <laughs> you guys. Where do you get the power to live like this? Carlton, come on up. Look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. First thing, you have to have a revolution in your understanding of sin and evil. Thank you, sir. Verse 32. Verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. Jesus does something here that he never does. He uses the word sinners like he never uses anywhere else. Jesus never goes, sinners, you sinners. He never does. And yet, he's doing this rhetorical game. He's using the way the word sinners. How is he using it? Like everybody else. Like everybody else. Democrats, Republicans, those sinners. If they would just, that's what's wrong with the world, religious people. Those atheists, those sinners. Atheists, those religious bigots. All of us are doing it. Those sinners, those sinners. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus do? Verse 35, check this out. But love your enemies to good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he is kind to what? He's going, you don't want to be like those sinners. You don't be like those sinners. Don't be like those sinners. And Jesus goes, you know what you are? You're evil and you're wicked. don't be like those sinners what are we you're evil and you're wicked people are like we're insiders we're insiders How, how 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 dare you call me wicked and evil and jesus says the only way to have a heart transformation that will be this kind of community is you got to have a totally different definition than the world of sin and evil world's definition of evil if you're a religious person I do good I obey the ten commandments I don't cheat I don't steal I don't lie I don't sleep with other people's wives I do these things and so I'm a good person and yet what are they doing self-righteously self-salvation self-righteously I'm going to be Lord self-righteously I'm going to be the master of my life so God I'm a good person to do all these things so I expect you to bless me I expect you to answer my prayers I expect their self-righteousness is conduit for evil outside people I'm going to be my own Lord. I'm going to be my own Savior. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to. The licentiousness is conduit for evil. Jesus says the very definition of sin and evil is not are you obeying the commandments or breaking it. The very definition of sin and evil is are you self-saving? Are you self-lording? Are you master of your own life? Who's king? The second thing Jesus says to him, unbelievably is not only do you need to destroy your old idea of sin and evil, he says realize that when you receive God's mercy, even though you're evil, you're also a child of God. Look how weird that is, you guys. The Most High makes you sons and daughters even though you're ungrateful and you're evil. Just six chapters later in Luke 11, Jesus talking about prayer and he says, Why? If, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your heavenly father give good gifts? Those who ask, There it is. You're evil, you're wicked, and yet your son, and yet your daughter. You're evil and you're wicked, and yet you're precious child of God. Why? Jesus goes to the cross reverses the values and says, I die in your place so you could be at the head of the table of the banquet feast. I die in your place and cast out so that you could be embraced and accepted as a child of God. The only way, the only way that our church has even a shot at being this alternate community, a city within a city that radically loves everybody, that radically embraces differences, that radically lives out the values of the kingdom, is if you have been so radically internally freed from what the world says, that you are free to look at the community in which God has brought you to and saying, in this community, nobody stands at the cross, points finger and says, you could come, you could come, you could come. You can't, you can't, you can't. But in this community, we all gather around the foot of the cross. We kneel, say Jesus is Lord, and we say, there's room. There's room anyone anyone can come God that's our desire is to be a city within a city God, I love these men and women to death. I love our church. I so want to see this community, God, be a radically alternate city here in the city of Chicago. God, we acknowledge to you this morning that we can't will this. We can't self-will, self-power this. We can't. We can't. We don't have... In us, what it takes, God, to radically relate to others in the way that you would have us relate to them. So, Lord, we ask the power of your Spirit. We ask the power of your Spirit, God, to be with us as we continue our journey from this sermon series. Will you help us? by the power of your spirit be this radically alternate city here in Chicago it's making the invisible visible thankful for you church I'm thankful for you church for being who you are you are to me, my family and to the rest of this church body I pray that as you leave this place leave this sermon series that you will not stop the journey of asking what it means for you to be a vital part a building block a family member of this body we need you We need you. We need you. You need us. You need us. You need us. In the name of the Son. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. And all God's people said. Amen.